turn in the Bible together to read this morning's sermon text. I do hope you have a Bible on hand. You can grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 32. If you don't happen to have one with you this morning, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 72. What we're going to study along the way today is all 35 verses of chapter 32, but to get us going, let me just read the first 14 verses and our hearing, and then pray for God to bless our study, and, and we'll begin together. So let's listen now as God speaks to us through His perfect Word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out and up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord and his God, saying, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. From the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask your kindness. We ask for your mercy in sending the Spirit into our hearts. The Spirit might fill our minds and prepare us to receive the word that you have for us today. We ask that you would help us to respond with repentance and meekness to the truth that confronts us in this passage. We do pray that you would confront us, that you would convict us, that you would carry us to Jesus Christ, who is our covenant mediator, who is full of covenant mercy. Help me to preach as you say I must. Let's listen as dying people. Let me preach as a dying man. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
The title of the article in an Australian magazine simply said, Why I cheated on my husband four weeks after my wedding day. And the article proceeded to spell out a story that's quite predictable in our time. The attraction and the allure of sin was so great, so great in fact, the wife couldn't overcome it. And so just weeks after making vows that were covenant vows, easily and quickly uh, tore them asunder. And your Bible over chapter 32 of Exodus might be titled The Golden Calf or something similar. Uh, You could title this chapter as Why Six Weeks After Their Wedding Israel Committed Adultery. Because if you scan all the way back to chapter 24 of Exodus, it was there that twice Israel made a covenant vow before the Lord. All that he has spoken, we will do. And you might remember Moses then took the blood of the covenant and scattered it, even sprinkling it on God's people, thereby signifying in this sovereign bond of blood that they're now covenantally united, Yahweh and Israel together. But what we find out in our text today It's not even six weeks on from that moment that they go about falling into idolatry, which the Old Testament says is nothing other than spiritual adultery. If Genesis 3 gives us Adam and Eve's fall into sin, here's Israel's fall into sin in chapter 32 of Exodus. And so for the last six weeks, if you, or last six chapters at least, if you've been with us in recent weeks, we've been with Moses at the top of Sinai. It was there that it was full of splendor and majesty as he received God's word. He heard it, these home building plans that God had placed in his hand, that God had purposed to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. And Moses, this is exactly who belongs in the tabernacle. This is exactly what belongs in the tabernacle. And then we saw even last week at the end of chapter 31, God's very own finger engraved his law on stone tablets, placing that in Moses' hands. And so at the scene there at the summit of Sinai, it was all splendor. It was all God's purpose of grace and coming to draw near to his people. But we now come down the mountain today to see what's been going on at the foot of the mountain and find out it's actually the exact opposite. This is not a scene of splendor and God drawing near to his people. It's it's a scene of sin, one of the most famous and notorious scenes of sin that you're going to find in all of Scripture. And so when we get to this point in Exodus chapter 32, recognizing the covenant relationship that Yahweh has made with Israel, the question before our minds as we get halfway through the chapter is really, is God going to divorce Israel? They've broken the covenant. God has expressed, even in our reading, his desire to tear them asunder. So is God's faithfulness run out towards his faithless people? And what we're going to see along the way, and the main thing that I have for you to consider this morning is something that, uh, no doubt, Exodus 32, it hints at, it portrays with uh, perhaps peculiar power, and it's something that the rest of Scripture makes clear, it's that salvation can only come through God's covenant mediator and God's covenant mercy, that you must have a covenant mediator, that you must receive covenant mercy if you, in your idolatry and adultery, can be made right with God. So we'll consider just in the first part, first six verses, Israel's faithlessness before thinking in the rest of the chapter about God's faithfulness. Faithfulness not only to mercy, 
but even his purpose of majesty and justice. So Israel's faithfulness, faithlessness, notice again verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now, if you pause right there, students, maybe a question you should ask is, What commandment are they getting ready to break in building this golden calf? Because it could be the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It could be the second commandment. You shall not make a graven image. And actually, grammatically, either one is, is right. Or certainly either one is, is possible. But I do think, as you notice how the rest of God's word comments on this passage, you would say that what they're getting ready to break is nothing other than the second commandment. Because it was after God had given Israel the Ten Commandments, he spoke in their hearing through Moses, the, the book of the covenant and that book of the covenant began with just a reiteration of the second commandment for example exodus 20 verse 23 says you shall not make gods of silver to be with me nor shall you, you shall make for yourselves gods of gold and here they are getting ready to make a god of gold falling into the sin of idolatry so kids as we think for the next few minutes about idolatry we need to make sure we know what idolatry means it means worshiping a substitute Savior. It means trusting in a substitute Savior. It simply means putting something or someone in the place of God. And you might think about your own home today, kids, and say, well, I don't have a golden cow on my windowsill in my bedroom. I mean, we don't even have one on the table in the dining room or perhaps the mantle in the family room. But, of course, you know as well as I do, don't you, that idols can often be formless Idols can be another person, something else, perhaps even emotions, relations, power, possessions, pleasures, sports, screens, smarts, and school. All of these can be substitute saviors for God's people. And what I want you to see in this first section is a few truths about idolatry. Number one, idolatry thrives on impatience. You see again, verse one, uh, what seems to be the, the reason why. Now they are building this idol. Well, they saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain. And he had told them, I'm going up. He never told them, if you remember from chapters back, when he's going to come down. So they're just waiting for him to return. And their waiting now has run out. It's time now, they think, to take matters into our own hands. And taking matters into their own hands results in, in idolatry. And I'm sure many of you know how impatience so easily, so quickly, leads to greater spiritual struggles and sins. It's even noticeable here that in the midst of their impatience, perhaps their fear and anxiety, that what they're getting ready to go back to is the gods of their former life in Egypt, as we'll see in just a minute. And idolatry thrives on impatience. Number two, idolatry rejects godly leadership. Not only do you notice in verse 1, they're bossing Aaron around. Moses' appointed right-hand man. Notice what they say about Moses himself in verse 1 at the end. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The end of Exodus 14 tells us that after God delivered Israel across the Red Sea, the very final verse in that chapter says, And they believed in Yahweh and his servant Moses. But now only a few months later, they're like, You know, this guy that went up the mountain... We don't know where he is. It's time to deal with things ourselves. 
And so if you ever wonder why idolatry can tend to run amok in one's life, perhaps an underlying factor that you haven't noticed before is a tendency of sin within your own heart to reject God-given structures of authority in your life, be it in the nation, be it in your home, students and children, be it even in the church. That idolatry thrives on impatience. It rejects godly leadership. Perhaps, of course, the most noticeable thing in these first few verses is number three. Idolatry means worshiping God on our own terms. Because you see in verse two through four, Aaron says to all the men, gather all the golden earrings in Israel. He takes all of them. Apparently, he burns it down. He, he forms this golden calf from all of this gold. And look at what's declared at the end of verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So, kids, have you ever wondered why he made a golden cow? Why not a golden camel? Why not a golden sheep? Why not a golden donkey? Why a golden cow? Well, one of the most well-known gods in Egypt was pictured as a cow and full of strength and power. And so what they're doing is they're going about worshiping the Lord. So I think it's right to understand this as they understand this cow to represent Yahweh himself. They're going about worshiping the Lord, but they're doing it in the wrong way. They're doing it how they want to do it. They're going about worshiping the Lord as the world would receive and delight to worship in the Lord. Of course, they're doing it not according to his word, according to their own terms. Fourth, you need to see idolatry leads to other sins. Aaron builds another altar, says, hey, tomorrow a feast is going to happen. Look at verse 6, what we're told at the end. And the people the next day sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that last phrase, it's a pretty noticeable one in its imagery in the original language. It really speaks of laughter. But the Old Testament will often use it to speak of sexual sin. And that seems to be what is happening here, that this idolatry has led to sexual immorality. If nothing else, it may have been lewd dancing before the Lord. But even in the apostolic commentary of 1 Corinthians 10, that's what the Apostle Paul says happens here at Sinai. It fell into idolatry, and it overflowed into this noticeable, heinous sexual immorality. And I do hope you understand that idolatry never just stays by itself. That it tends to promote other sins. It tends to give rise to other lusts. It was a few years ago when Hurricane Matthew was bearing down on Florida that the governor at the time appeared on television calling the citizens to evacuate the state. And things went about how you would expect the subsequent reports. You know, you'd see these camera angles from helicopters flying over highways that were altogether stopped with people trying to flee the state and then you turn on perhaps another news station even the weather channel itself and uh, you'd find journalists or reporters talking with local people that said now we're just going to stay it out and stick it through uh, this oncoming storm because we have no interest in, in heeding the warning and that is the New Testament's central commentary on this passage of course, 1 Corinthians 10, we've mentioned a number of times already. Paul's simple point is you see this as an example of what can happen to God's people and the call is simply to flee from idolatry. And you must heed the warning that belongs to Israel's faithlessness. But now let's think about God's faithfulness to his faithless people. You see verse 7, while all that's going on at the foot of the mountain, 
God now speaks to Moses at the top of the mountain. He says in verse 7, Go down for your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Now you always want to pay attention, don't you, to the pronouns. He doesn't say, my people. He says, Moses. These are your people. You brought them out of the land of Egypt. I didn't bring them out of the land of Egypt. It seems as though in certain ways you always like that parent in the grocery store whose kids are rummaging about in the aisle and says to the cashier, I don't know who those children are. (laughs) Or perhaps you come home one day from work and your wife tells you, you want to know what your son did today? So, So great is their sin. He's distancing, isn't he, himself from his people, saying they have corrupted they have corrupted themselves. And that word is altogether ominous. Because it's used in Genesis chapter 6, speaking about the corruption that belonged to the world that required God's worldwide flood upon sin. So you get to this point, you hear that word and you wonder, is God going to overthrow with a flood of judgment the world that is Israel? And he says, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Notice verse 9 and 10. Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses, don't talk to me. Moses, don't speak with me. Just leave me alone, and let my wrath emanate out and consume my people. But oftentimes, if you know your Bible well, when God says, leave me alone, it's actually an invitation to intercession. Because Moses doesn't leave God alone, does he? He doesn't stay there in the silence at Sinai. No, he, he speaks up and he prays. Look at verse 11. Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? You see, he's just reversed the pronouns again, hasn't he? You have brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so he's pleading, isn't he, God's character in this prayer. Notice verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out of the mountain to kill them and consume them from the face of the earth? It's just in two chapters time that Moses is going to hide himself in this cleft in the rock. And he's going to hear the Lord declare truth about his character. Of course, in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord declares that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And here's Moses pleading on the basis of God's character. If you consume your people here in the wilderness, the rest of the watching world is going to think you're just this easily irritated God who has no problem capriciously just consuming his people when they sin against him. You can't do this because of your character. Not just that. Notice verse 13. Also, you can't do this because of your covenant. Verse 13 says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land I have promised that I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So kids, do you know when God made that promise? That Moses references here in verse 13. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. This covenant promise he made to a man named Abraham. It's a very covenant promise we know from Exodus chapter 2. That motivated God to even bring Israel 
out of Egypt, that he might deliver them to the promised land, that they might abound as a people so great, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And Moses is saying, God, your character, God, your, your covenant means you can't do this. Your character and your covenant means you, you must relent of your promised wrath. John Newton is a pastor who's probably most famous for his hymns, even particularly one hymn that the slave trader turned pastor wrote. Original title was Faith's Review and Expectation, which we know today as Amazing Grace. And in his time, he was not just a celebrated pastor and hymn writer. He was also actually a celebrated correspondent writer, a letter writer. If you ever have a chance to grab a a volume of of his letters and just read maybe a letter a day, I think you'd be surprised the degree to which your soul might be edified and you'd find unique wisdom. And one day he was writing a letter to a friend after he returned that evening from his church's prayer meeting. And John Newton said to his friend, he said, Oh, how cold were our pleadings and intercession. Not a tear could be found in the room. Of course, Moses' intercession here is no cold pleading before the Lord. It's earnest intervention that even stays God's hand. Look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now you'll come to verses like this in texts like this in Scripture where you might have a hard time. You might wonder, perhaps even in your own mind, how do you reconcile the text telling us that God relented of something he said he was going to do with the reality that God is unchanging? Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Well, you can write this verse down and go read it later this afternoon. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 6 and 7. God simply says this is not unusual for him. Kids, we might summarize it as God tells us. He will relent when his people repent. Of course, in this chapter, he will relent when there is a mediator for God's people. But as we're getting ready to see, this doesn't mean that God is actually done with Israel You see, he sends Moses down the mountain in verse 12. Moses is carrying these two tablets of stone. As he and Joshua are going down the mountain, they hear this singing, this music, this this noise and clamor at the foot of the space. And Joshua wonders, is it battle? Is it victory? What, What is it exactly that we're hearing? And perhaps the simplest way I could illustrate in more contemporary terms what confronted Moses and Joshua as they came down Mount Sinai, if you think about a a family, or I should say, I guess just the parents leaving a home over the weekend and leaving it in charge of their children and they return at home and uh, there seems to be nothing more than a frat party of debauchery and immorality that's spilled out into the streets and you would understand that such a parent would have righteous indignation at such action. Well, you multiply that times at least a thousand. And you get what Moses is experiencing. Notice verse 19. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. It wasn't just merely out of anger that he's breaking the tablets. Of course, it's symbolically showing what Israel has done. They've broken the law, so he breaks the tablets. They've shattered the covenant, so he shatters the stone. Not just that, it's time to deal with each person involved or even each thing involved in succession. So first he deals with the golden calf. You see he takes it in verse 20. He burns it with fire, grinds it into powder, scatters it on the water and makes Israel drink it. Such as any human idol, any man-made God can't prevent itself from being 
drunk by those that worship it. And now he's got to deal with Aaron in verse 21 through 24. He says to his older brother, doesn't he, in verse 21, why are you doing this? Or why have you done this? And Aaron, much like Adam in the Garden of Eden in that scene of a fall, just goes about the blame game. Because you see, verse 22, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. He doesn't only blame the people, does he? In verse 24, he blames the fire. He says, you know, I threw this gold into the fire and out came this calf. It's not my fault, Moses. And of course, it's a, a striking scene in which you could go through the chapter perhaps later on with a brother and sister in Christ. And it would be edifying, no doubt, to, to, to see the, the comparison and contrast between Moses in this chapter and his godly leadership and, and Aaron in this chapter and his ungodly leadership. Uh, so often, the question that's put before those who are called to lead is, do you want to lead or do you want to be liked? And there are some times when you lead, people will like leadership. But most of the time, many of us know, don't we? When you lead, someone's not going to like what you're doing. And so as students, you have to decide early on, even now, perhaps even this week, will you go the way that is popular? Will you go the way that is right? Of course, this echo of God's covenant mercy is here's Aaron going about this blame game with the people in the fire, and he's soon to be appointed the high priest of God's people. Such is God's mercy. So Moses has dealt with the calf. He's dealt with Aaron. Well, now he's got to deal with the nation as a whole. You'll see in verse 25 and following that he stands up, and he says in verse 26, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. He doesn't ask why I need you on the Lord's side. He doesn't declare why you should be on the Lord's side. He just says, who's on the Lord's side? And you see, only his family, the Levites, come next to Moses. And then according to God's divine command, he puts a sword in each one of their hands. And this is what being on the Lord's side means. Verse 27, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you shall kill his brother his companion, and his neighbor. I wonder in the face of noticeable immorality and idolatry in our context, someone was to stand up and say, who's on the Lord's side? If you would be counted among them. They're now counted as God's priests. The Levites are. You see verse 29, this is the ordination service. Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And there's an unusual comparison that the Apostle Paul makes, thinking about this scene, no doubt, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, The law kills, but the Spirit brings life. For understand, it is, of course, no coincidence, an accident, that the law comes down and 3,000 people die as a result. And then Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down at Pentecost and 3,000 people are brought to new life in Jesus Christ. The law bringing condemnation and sin, pointing us forward to the mediator and the mercy that's required for anyone to escape God's wrath. Our family is only a few weeks away from making our annual trek to the Rocky Mountains. And that means that one of our children is counting down the days and tends to tell us every morning how many days are left before we leave. 
And you can occasionally hear, as the days continue on, this playlist that we call Mountain Country erupting from the speaker in our home. And uh, those of you that have made a journey northwest know that there's a peculiar excitement if you're anything like me and just waiting for that first peak of the mountains cresting over the horizon. And Emily and I made that trip several years ago. It was just the two of us. The kids were with grandparents, and we had scheduled it in such a way for a variety of different reasons where we drove through the night, but I wanted to ensure that when we arrived at that kind of point when you normally see the mountains, that you know, we'd be there just as the dawn uh, sunlight was rising in the east, but it was that day that the sun not only rose, it was an immense cloud of fog rose as well, and so we drove for hours and hours into the mountains, knowing we were there, but really not seeing what we so desperately wanted to see. And when you come to Exodus 32, it's a text that is a summit in Scripture, and there's always a danger, isn't there, in such a text that you can come to it wanting to look for the truth wanting to see the true splendor of the sight, but you can for reasons of distraction, for reasons of preoccupation, for reasons that I don't even know, miss it because of a fog that's clouding your soul. So as we begin to close, I want to make sure if you don't hear anything else this morning, you hear two final things. Number one, how great is your sin? How great is your sin? The passage has already told us, hasn't it, that the sin of Israel has caused, caused God to burn hot. Cause Moses to burn hot. Thus he says, notice verse 30. The next day after the Levites have gone about their ordination work. He says to Israel, you have sinned a great sin. Verse 31, Moses has gone up the mountain by that point and says, alas, this people has sinned a, a great sin. It's not just sin happening there at Sinai. It, it's great sin. And parents, you want to help your children understand that the Bible has a category for great sins. Yes, it's true that all sin, of course, brings the penalty of death, but some sins are uglier. Some sins are viler in the sight of God. This is a text that's calling us to, to stop and to stare as the New Testament commands, that we might flee from idolatry, that we might know that our hearts likewise can be led astray into idolatry, immorality, and, and spiritual adultery. You haven't understood the text rightly if you can't say, oh, how great is my sin. But nor have you understood the text rightly if you can't say, secondly, how much greater is the Savior. Because look at what Moses says in verse 30. He says, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So he climbs back up those few thousand feet to the summit of Sinai. He says in verse 31, Alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out from your book that you have written. If you just glance down at the next verse, God says to both of those requests, because he's really just made two, he says, no, I'm not going to forgive their sin, and nor am I going to blot you out from my book. He says in verse 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Thus the chapter ends in verse 35 with God sending a plague of judgment upon his people. It's a text of good news, but you want to ask where is the good news? About a covenant mediator, about covenant mercy, and perhaps the simplest way I can bring it to your attention this morning 
As you just circle that word in verse 30, where Moses says, perhaps I can make atonement for you. There's no promise in a gospel of perhaps. Perhaps I can forgive you of your sins. Perhaps God will show his love upon you once again. Perhaps he will come down and dwell with you in all of his beauty, glory, and majesty. Perhaps I can make it right. But Moses can't. God doesn't answer that request. He doesn't bring about the immediate forgiveness that only the ordained priest can bring about. He doesn't bring about the effectual atonement that only the ordained priest can bring about. A gospel of perhaps is no good news, is it? Which points us to the Lord Jesus Christ who brings us a gospel not of possibility, but it's a gospel of ability. That's why Hebrews chapter 7 says that he is able to save. Not it's possible that he will save. He's able to save those who draw near to him. For he always lives to make intercession for him. This is why he's the guarantee of a better covenant. Where Moses can say, perhaps I can mediate in such a way that you'll be forgiven and atoned for. The Lord Jesus Christ comes. And of course he makes intercession always for his people. Moses wanted to be blotted out. Jesus was blotted out. So that's what he can say. All of God's promises are not perhaps in me. All of God's promises are, are yes and amen in me. That it's in Jesus Christ that your faithlessness will never outrun God's faithfulness. As in Jesus Christ who is the covenant mediator. Who is abounding in covenant mercy. That you will find salvation in the midst of even the greatest sin. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would fill us with your life-giving spirit this morning as we want to repent of our sin, as we know we must turn from our sin and, and trust in Jesus Christ. Give us a heart of wisdom. Give us a heart of humility. Fill us with your spirit that we might look to Christ in all things and find the mercy that's found in our mediator. Let us always know the strength and the comfort the kindness that belongs to an intercessor always pleading for us. That we might not fall astray as Israel did. Help us therefore to flee from the idolatry that so often tempts us. We do pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.